You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. This week's Country Music Success Story is full of highs and lows, clever self-promotion ideas that were way before their time, and lots of perseverance. In 1979, singer, songwriter, guitarist John Berry had big dreams and the patience to make them happen. A gifted singer and storyteller, he recorded his own songs in a little studio his father helped him build in the basement of their family home. And then he distributed those songs on his own label, his first independent album appropriately called Humble Beginnings. He played for University of Georgia Bulldog fans after football games in college bars and clubs, never saying no to the chance to play out. And more than 10 years passed before John Barry was signed to a record deal. Success is a long road, and nobody knows better than John Barry. Fame's not a decision you make. It's a lot more work, and it's a lot of fairy dust. I got my share of fairy dust. I got what I got. And there are other artists that got just dumped on, you know. Married to his backup singer Robin for 33 years, John has recorded 30 albums over 40 years, and he's scored 19 Billboard country chart appearances, including a song I know you know, the number one smash, Your Love Amazes Me. JC and I settled into the music room at their home, where his favorite guitars are never too far away. We sat around an old dining room table worn by time and the once tiny hands of their now grown children. I asked John to take me back to what life was like in his house when he was growing up. We had a great family life. My mom and dad were sweet, dear, salt-of-the-earth kind of people. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, took care of me and my older brother and older sister. And my dad was a construction worker, hard-working guy. I grew up in a family where I knew my folks loved each other, and I knew they loved me. So it was great. It was a great, great environment to be in. Tell me about music. Was there always music always playing? Always music. I was such an uncool kid. <laughs> well, you're pretty cool now. Well, I don't know about that. We had this big round table in our living room, and I can remember my dad bought a stereo, and the speakers sat on the floor, and the and the turntable and the receiver sat on the table, those green dials, and there was the, the AM dial, but then there was the ominous FM. FM dial. FM dial. What in the world is FM? Exactly. And people yeah. never even used to listen to FM no. stations until they figured out the music sounded so much better yeah. on FM, right? I can remember laying between those speakers and turning them in and listening to Tapestry. Carol my, my sister bought that album. What a remarkable time that was and laying on that floor and listening to uh the letterman uh, <laughs> like, like i said i'm not very cool and uh <laughs> i love these songs these are great songs yeah, so who some... were your early musical influences well, what made you turn the radio up well I, I think what made me turn the radio up was the shy lights and the stylistics that stuff really got me you know and that r&b stuff that had that vibe about it i really like that philly soul sound stuff oh yeah and, yeah your first guitar. Tell me how old you were. Who gave it to you? Take me back to that day. My very first guitar of mine, I bought at Kmart for twenty four ninety nine. I had half the money and my dad fronted me the other half. And we bought it at Kmart on Claremont Road in Atlanta, Georgia. Everyone that we've interviewed on the show who's a musician, whether they be a pianist or, or a guitarist, a drummer, whatever, that first 
instrument that they get is something that they never, ever, ever forget. I remember yeah. Bonnie Raitt telling me that her first guitar was purchased from the Sears and Roebuck catalog. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got it on Christmas Day and never forgot it for the rest of her life. My prize one is the one right, right over here leaning against the studio table. That's my Martin D35. I was in a motorcycle accident in 1981, and... I got a, a, a whopping $1,000 settlement check from the insurance company of the car that hit me, and I took $580 and bought that Martin D35. Which back then was a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot of money now. But uh, <laughs> back then, it was a whole lot of money. Those guitars now are like $3,500, $4,500. But, but that's the one guitar that I've had all these years, and I'll probably, I guess I'll always have that one. So Let's go back to that accident. 21 years old, what happened? Going through a parking lot in northeast Atlanta, and I was going from a little restaurant I would eat at a lot, and I was going through the parking lot to Turtles, Records, and Tapes. There was a line of trees, and the road came in, and the lady did not stop at that stop sign and and caught me. And And what happened? uh, Broke both my femurs and uh, my left hip. When you were recovering from something like that, and you can't move around a lot, I'm going to guess that that guitar was your friend. Oh, yeah. I think more than anything else, it sort of forced me into going into music full time because I couldn't go back to work. I was working at a factory in Atlanta. Early on in your career, you start performing solo acoustic shows in Georgia and you start gaining some traction. You promote yourself by producing and distributing your own albums. You were way ahead of your time because independent artists now, that's what they have to do, right? Oh, sure. Take me back to those early days of your career. I had no idea what I was doing. No idea. We we built a little studio in the basement of my folks' house. My dad helped me build it. And um, it's uh, a little four-track recorder. We have more recording equipment on a little computer here than we ever dreamed of having in that little studio. We were literally four tracks. And the first album, Humble Beginnings, came out in 1979, and we recorded four tracks, and then we would take that and mix it down to a two-track. Then we'd physically lift the two-track tape up and put it on the four-track machine and have two more tracks. So tell me, were these live recordings, or were the, oh, no. were you recording in this little studio? Yeah, we were recording in our little studios, me and uh, my friend Perry Barton. And on that album, uh, our, our friend Mark Hensley played drums and Dick Falcone played bass. We had all known each other for a long time. And, and uh, so we had, let me see, everything was mono. We would just sort of spread them out in the mix a little bit, you know. And uh, drums were mono, uh, bass, acoustic guitar, and piano. And then we'd come back and do a track of vocal and some harmony vocals. You know, I think every experience that we have in life teaches us something. I'm hoping I'll learn something from those, but... You sell 10,000 or more records doing it like this. Yeah, it takes... Yeah, yeah. And then you get the attention of a record label. Liberty Records was your first label. It all came about because of Joe Diffie's song, Ships That Don't Come In. And that's, that's what sparked that whole move. We were playing at O'Malley's, a little club in Athens, Georgia, this uh, particular night. And uh, I was driving home to our farm out in the country. We lived about 18 miles out of town. And driving up Highway 106, and this Joe Diffie song comes on the radio, and the, D- the DJ, he announces the song. He said, man, y'all turn it up. Brand new song from Joe Diffie. You're going to love this. 
and I love Joe anyway, so I turn the volume up, and he sings ships that don't come in, and he got to the line, he says, and to those who stand on empty shores and spit against the wind, and those who wait forever for ships that don't come in, and it hit me like a freight train. I mean, I was just like, I had tears. I was just like, man. And I got home, and I told Robin about what I, because, you know, I, I dreamed bigger of than being a club singer in Athens, Georgia, and I guess I was in my 30s, like 31. So we sat up that night and came up with a plan to go to Nashville every six weeks and go do the showcase, go to one of the clubs and do a showcase. And I was a writer with ASCAP at the time, and they had the industry showcase list you could get a hold of. And we sent out 250 invitations, and we came up and did our very first industry showcase. And we were hoping that we would have a turnout. We had some friends and curiosity folks, you know, curious folks to see what was going on at Douglas Corner that night. But of that list of uh, 250 people we sent invitations out to, one guy showed up. From a label. And that was Liberty. Herky Williams. He worked with Jimmy Bowen. And Jimmy was the president of uh, Liberty, you know, which was capital. And uh, that's the only industry showcase we ever did. We did that one. Well, you've mentioned your beautiful wife, Robin, and she just joined us. Robin, thank you so much for having us to your home today. Oh, I am so glad that y'all are here. Well, your husband is just wild and crazy about you. And how many years have you guys been married? We are going on 33 years. Congratulations. Boy, I'll tell you, that's a long time. And uh, it's probably what you're both most proud of. What's it like to sing with this beautiful woman? It's awesome. Well, it's just just so nice to have this person on stage that, knows how to keep me moving along and not dwell too long on talking about stuff and (laughs) (laughs) no it's just it's it's just great to be able to to share something that's so important to me with her and we get to do it together and it's a lot of fun and and people they just love her to death and yeah i didn't always sing um we were married and i guess the first time we ever sang together was at our church and we were doing a little Christmas program, me and John and my sister-in-law, Tracy, and the church pianist. And I had never sung in public like that before. I grew up singing in choirs and things like that. But then it, it was a lot of fun. And then he did a demo tape for Warner Brothers. And a very, very good singer sang back up, Miss Kathy Matea. And so there was five songs. He said, you ought to learn these five songs and start getting up with the band and singing these five songs. And so I did. And it was great. I loved it. John liked it. And then when he did his performance for Jimmy Bowen, he did those five songs. And so I got up and I sang those five songs. And she hasn't sat down since. And I haven't. (laughs) They had girls singing on the, the record and I had a gig. So we were married probably three or four years before I ever sang with him. You know, I want to go back to that moment where you came home to your wife and you cooked up this plan that you were going to go to Nashville every six weeks. Yeah. What's it like to have a partner who knows that that's what makes your heart sing. Oh, and that this is, that was a seminal moment. What if she'd said no? No, oh, that's the best. I mean, that's just the way it should be, you know, and we just had a, a great time putting that together and it was scary and exciting. It and, was scary because and, it's a, it was a very unorthodox type of lifestyle for me. I didn't grow up living in a, a family that was entrepreneurs or musicians. My family 
has a military background, and so this was very different. I mean, I'm definitely the black sheep of the family. <laughs> and so, but John, I mean, I just knew he was talented. And you I believed mean, I, in him. I did. And, and she he was passionate. In me. There he goes. Jenny <laughs> Rogers. Were you ever scared? I mean, here's your husband asking you, okay, learn these five songs, get up here with me, sing in front of these people. Um, I think the hardest part for me was actually, you know, a lady, uh, a girl recorded on the records and I had to get up in front of crowds and I was actually supposed to know what I was needing to listen to in a monitor and sing on a microphone and I had not ever done that. So that was the scariest part for me was just learning how to listen for my own voice. Your priorities change as a mom and a dad when the babies start coming along. Oh, yeah. How did you make that work and continue to to tour and to be a family? My sister, who um, was a wonderful mom, had five children and ended up with, uh, before she passed away, 32 grandchildren. And uh, she told me, she said, don't let the babies change your life. They will adapt. Take them with you. She said they she said they just learn and 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 Taylor Marie did we we you know Robin's mom well we couldn't have done it without Robin's mom. Yeah, Taylor Marie was two when we started on the road and um I think industry at that time they thought we were crazy. Absolutely. Nobody was taking their families on the road. It was not very highly thought of to have the artist with his wife and his daughter and his mother-in-law out on the road and we were all <laughs> on one bus with the guys in the band. It worked for us, though. It worked, and um, we balance each other, and um, he can say things to me that maybe he couldn't say to a road manager or his manager. We could discuss things, and it just always worked. It wasn't that I'm the best background singer. It just mm. works that we're together. Your song, Your Love Amazes Me, number one song. I read somewhere that you found out that song went to number one, in a hospital bed. Yeah, I was. Uh, I had brain surgery the morning and that song was our number one record. Tell me about that. And I don't recommend it. <laughs> but you got to do what you got to do, your number one record, you know. That was the May 10th of 94, and I had not been well. Since January. Since January, since, you know, just after Christmas, it started feeling a little odd. Did you know something was wrong, Robin? I did. Like the, um, the wife intuition? Well, the it was more than that. The wife intuition was February. that he was mean and ugly and Not himself. losing a lot of weight. He sent me and my mom and Taylor Marie home from the road. She was pregnant with our second child, Sean. And he had just completely turned into someone that we didn't know and withdrawn within himself. And uh, it was really a horrible, horrible time. But God uses those times for me to grow closer to him and to depend on him. And God really told me at that time that everything was going to be okay, that I did not need to worry and stress. And I was really given a lot of peace about what was going to happen. Little did I know that it was something in his brain. And the day that our son was being born, I called him. And he was in D.C. doing a show that night. And I said, the baby's going to be born today. And he said, well, call me back and let me know how it goes. 
course, I tell my mom that she hits the roof. She's calling Robin Majors. Oh, my tour manager. The tour manager saying, get John on a plane and get him home. The baby's going to be born today. And he came walking in. He probably weighed about 145 pounds and he looked awful and it absolutely broke my heart. So you got a newborn baby. You got a number one song. You got brain surgery. So... This song, Your Love Amazes Me, which is one of my favorites of yours, gets a Grammy nomination, a CMA Horizon Award for Best New Artist. Don't you ever doubt this love of mine You're the only one for me You give me hope, you give me reason You give me something to believe in things that I find to be quite amazing is that the industry can call you a new artist when you've been out there for 10, 12 years and working your butt off. Tell me what it was like to get that award, though, and how were you feeling by then? It's been really cool to have those moments of recognition, and it kind of validates what you do within the industry, and it's just a really nice moment to have to be a part of those events, and they asked me to sing on the 95 uh, award show. They asked me to sing on that show, and that was just like, wow, how cool is that to get to perform on one of these shows? What have you learned about the art of live performance, about connecting with that audience? Because Every audience is a little different. Every town you go to, it's just a little different. What have you learned about being an entertainer? It's hard to put into words that it just takes those first couple of songs to sort of get the vibe of the room, you know, kind of figure out just what the room feels like. It, of course, it's a lot, lot different when you're just getting started out because they don't know who you are. So you got to kind of introduce yourself to them and stuff. But then after you've been doing it for a while and, and you've got f- folks that are coming, I go out on stage with a very appreciative heart that they're there. Sometimes astonished that they're there <laughs> that they're in the numbers that they are, you know, and it's just really exciting for me. It's, it's, it's joyous, you know, to be able to walk out and sing for people where my music is meant. So much to them. And they know the words to your songs and they're mouthing the words to these songs. And I just wish I wish that, of course, you you, you have to play the hit songs. And I wish that it wasn't like 75 minutes. They booked us for a 75 minute show because there's so many songs that they want to hear. You got to do the ones that were the hits on the radio. You got to do those. And then you got to play a few new things off whatever project you have out now or coming. And it doesn't leave a lot of time to get deep into those album cuts that typically, for me, are some of the best songs ever recorded, is the deep tracks. How about you, Robin? As you developed as a singer on these big stages with all these people, what have you learned about performance? Well, I think it's interesting, the audience that you play for and what you gravitate to there's there's festivals that you go play where your show your set is geared to a whole nother audience and i love the energy of that that's what i love john loves a 900 seat theater where people have paid to come and see and hear him and he gets to tell stories and he gets to do a lot of songs that he loves to do. 
and he's chilled and relaxed and laid back, and he really loves that. So I think it's catering to the audience and the venue that you have makes the show so wonderful. And you have to connect to them. They want to feel like, you know, they know you and know your music and it's wonderful and we've learned that that moment where no matter if it's a big festival or a theater show that moment where the band leaves stage and maybe robin and i do a song just the two of us or sit on the end of the stage sit on this and and talk to them for a few minutes that's their favorite part he is able to get the audience in the palm of his hand at that moment and you can tell from then on out it's a different venue it changes Speaking of having the audience in the palm of your hand, there's a moment for an artist when they hear their song on the radio for the first time. Oh, yeah. You're already smiling. Take me back. What was the song? Where were you? That song on an independent record of mine called That Woman Loves Me So Much. And up-tempo, fun song. And I'm driving down our little dirt road that went to Drake's Creek Road. Mm -hmm. I heard WNGC at Athens, Georgia playing That Woman Loves Me So Much on the radio. That was like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> coolest thing ever. And then I can remember the first time I ever heard a song of mine after, you know, we had hits on the radio while we were driving to Nashville, going through Chattanooga. That was cool. US 101 and Kiss Me in the Car came on. John said, I'm going to call the radio station and tell them thank you for playing it. I mean, it was like 11 <laughs> o'clock at night. And sure enough, did they answer the, the listener line? Very good. And she was Over just beside herself. <laughs> John had called to tell her thank you for playing his song. That was it was awesome. cool. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about songwriting. Is it a labor of love or is it a hard job to write a it's, song? It's hard. You're shaking your head. It's hard. I got friends who are just so into it. They're so prolific. They just, three times a day, they can spit out a hit. You know, it's unbelievable. (laughs) It's a gift, isn't it? Yeah. And I've been fortunate to have some good ideas and really fortunate to get in the room with people to know how to write those ideas. So it's been, you know. I tell him, back before we were married, he had six albums that he wrote on his own and recorded and then we got married, and he kind of quit writing. And, I mean, he had these beautiful love songs about girls he dated. And I'm like, baby. They're cheesy. Can you just not <laughs> write? He said, well, it's kind of takes up a lot of time being a dad and being a husband and being on the road. and we'll being, sp- being marriage time consuming. Yeah. <laughs> There's also been a really cool chapter of your life that has to do with songs and stories. It started off a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, he said, man, you really should record an album that people could they can take the show home. And we ended up recording the Christmas, the live Christmas CD. It was great. It worked out awesome. We, we still have that CD on the road with us when we travel and online. After that, he says, I got another idea. <laughs> When, when you go do these shows with your, your, your piano player and your wife, Robin, if, when y'all go do these, these acoustic shows, he said, you should record those and put out a storyteller kind of CD. 
So we went and we played venues all over and recorded and recorded and put all this work together and edited it down and not just did the live songs, but we included this, the story itself, you know. And and that CD was, ended up being a two-disc set called Songs and Stories. Then people kept asking if we had a book that with any of those stories in them. So Robin kind of made it a project a number of years ago where she would take those recordings and transcribe them out. Then I would take them and try to add or subtract from them to make it a, a reasonable read, you know, just like a one page. So we would have a, a pictures from the tour, the story I would tell, and then the associated song lyrics on another page. So you know, about four pages per song. And I think that songs and stories at two discs, that is the ultimate John Barry fan favorite. They love that. It is so raw and it's real. The yeah. stories are hysterical and people love it. Well, you know, storytelling is such a powerful way of connecting with an audience. Yeah. This is an incredible body of work for you. How many albums have you released over the course of your career, John Barry? I think around 30. And how many years have you been doing this? Um, about, f well, 79 is the first record, so 40-something years. What are you most proud of? My family. Yeah, I've got a wonderful family, and uh, we've been blessed. God has blessed us with uh, three beautiful children and three great in-law children and the most precious granddaughter ever. And uh, we don't get to see her enough, but she's precious. But as far as musically, uh, I can't imagine having done anything else, you know. Fill in the blank. The key to being successful in country music is... That's a tough one. That's not a that's not an easy answer. Because and, I think the answer probably twenty years ago would be different than it is now. Yeah. I can't remember how old Sean was when we were at the farm and Elder Mill Road and we were moving from there and things were not as good as they had been. And we were in the barn one day and we were packing some stuff up and he was sitting up on some a fence a post in the stall. I could tell he was agitated. And I said, Sean, what in the world's wrong? He said, Dad how come you decided not to be famous anymore? And that's when I realized he'd been watching way too much Disney TV. I said, fame's not a decision you make. It's a lot more work, and it's a lot of fairy dust. I got my share of fairy dust, you know. I got what I got. And there are other artists that got just dumped on, you know. And uh, it's unexplainable. It's inexplicable how much things have gone their way on a consistent year after year, decade after decade basis, you know. One of the things that I always like to say to an artist, not just as, a, as someone who's played songs on the radio for most of my life, but as a fan of music, is to thank the artist for what they give to the listener, mm -hmm. for the songs that become a part of your life. And I also want to make sure that I mention how happy I am to see you in good health. Well, I know you. you've had so many health challenges oh, throughout gosh. the course of your career. <laughs> and it's so great to see you feeling good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, John, for sharing your story today. And Robin. Thank you. John and Robin Berry for being our guests on Country Music Success Stories. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. What an amazing couple. John Berry and his wife, Robin Berry, are a shining example of what can happen when two people form a team to support each other's dreams, hopes, and goals. Hi, I'm JC Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. John Berry's story is fascinating to me 
And I want to go on the record here by saying that he is one of the kindest artists I've ever had the opportunity to sit down with, and that goes for his wife, Robin, too. The way John got started in the music industry is very much the same way artists are still getting started today. Indie labels are all over the place, and independent artists are having more success than ever before. I had the chance to ask John a couple questions about this very subject. John, the way you began your musical journey is so similar to the way artists are still starting out today. Is there anything you wish you knew when you were just getting started? Just surround yourself with people that you know you can trust. Have good people around you, a good team of people that will give you solid advice and who have your best interest at heart. John is absolutely correct. I would argue that having the right people around you is the single most important key to your success. But how do you find these people and what positions do you really need to fill? Defining the roles of jobs in the music industry can be hard. Here is my list of the five people you will eventually need to help elevate your career. Number one will be your manager. This is the person who oversees your entire career and is most often the highest member of your team, meaning the other members will likely answer to this person. I want to mention a couple different kinds of managers. The first one is your business manager. This is the person that handles your business, meaning your financial agreements and your contracts. This person may also work to bring in business opportunities, like sponsorships or partnerships to grow your brand. A lot of artists also have a personal manager. Quite frequently, this is the person who has been with you from the start. Sometimes it's a relative or a friend. They handle more of the personal, day-to-day -day elements of your career. They will also help to bring in opportunities like partnerships and deals to grow your fan base. I also want to mention your road manager. This is the person managing your touring life. For instance, if you are performing at an event, this person will make sure you have a dressing room and that you know what time you are expected to walk on stage. They will arrange hotels, sound check, and load-in times. The next key person is your publicist. I say this all the time, but in my opinion, having a good publicist can really be the one tool that catapults you to stardom. A publicist's job is to handle your public relations, including sending out press releases to announce your latest projects and collaborations. They will write up a release in hopes of the press taking a hold of it and publishing it in magazines, blogs, and even newspapers. A publicist will also handle booking your interviews and familiarizing your name with the media in hopes of landing you an interview opportunity on television or on the radio. Remember this, a publicist's job is not to book you for performances. That is the job of your booking agent. Your booking agent will be the person booking your musical performances. If there is a festival, an event that needs a performer, or even a venue looking to book out their season, your booking agent or agency will pitch all of the artists on their roster in hopes of securing them for one of these opportunities to perform. Next, you'll need a good marketing expert. This will be the person who helps get all of the things that you are doing in front of your fans and potential fans. They can assist with your digital marketing, such as social media or web design, fan relations, and even concert promotion. They'll oftentimes handle taking photos of you at events and keeping you connected to your audience online so that you can focus on making music. 
Finally, once you're making all that money, you'll need a really good accountant. I had the chance to ask John about this very subject, and here's his advice. I wish I'd had better financial advice. Uh, the one, one bit of advice I got from a gentleman years ago I wish I had heeded. He, he said he treated every dollar like it was the last one he was going to make. Because sooner or later, one of them's going to be the last one you're going to make. So now that you've got a clear idea of who each of these people are and what roles they will play in your career, you can begin to start mapping out your road to success. And I want to leave you with this piece of advice. Once you start gaining a little attention on you and your music, there will be lots of people chomping at the bit, wanting to jump on your train to be a part of it. Remember this, no award-winning person or shiny name attached to somebody's resume can compare with your gut feeling. Don't be blinded by these things. Dig down deep and really think about the choices you are making. You'll know who feels like a right fit for you. Always trust your intuition on every decision you make. More wisdom you can use from Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. Inspired by the story of John and Robin Berry, who valued family above everything else, bringing their children with them on the road and building a team they could trust. For a free tip sheet from J.C. on how you can build your team, just go to candioterry.com backslash country music podcast. Subscribe to JC's YouTube channel for insights and advice on how to make it in Nashville. And if you liked country music success stories, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Check out our new website, countrymusicsuccessstories.com, and follow us on social at Candy O'Terry and at JC Don Valeris. Our Facebook and IG handles are at Country Music Success Stories. Thank you to John Barry and his wife, Robin, for welcoming us into their beautiful home. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. Until next time, this is Candy O'Terry saying thank you so much for listening to Country Music Success Stories.